Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman, here with my friend and Chavruta, Ann Gordon. Today, we will be discussing Shabbat Daf Memhe 45. So the Gemara here goes through a very interesting scenario right at the top of the Daf about a tree. Um, and I think it's worth pointing out because you almost could miss it. Um, it's within a discussion of trying to elaborate a little bit more from a discussion started on the previous page about Rabbi Shimon and some of his views on Muksa. Um, and it, the Gemara brings an interesting uh, point here, uh, really right from the top of the daf here I'm reading. So it's trying to prove here, um, or is it, you know, to conclude that Rav actually agrees with Rabbi Yehuda, right? And again, when we're talking about Muksa, Rabbi Shimon has a much more limited view of what Muksa could look like, and Rabbi Yehuda has a much more expansive view of what Muksa looks like. The Amar Rav, for Rav says the following, We can put a burning lamp on a tree. Here specifically, the example used is a palm tree. That's what a dekel is. But we cannot leave a this lit lamp on a, on a palm tree for a Yom Tov. Okay, very interesting, um, very interesting halacha here. So what I just wanted to point out here is, um, what is this thing with the tree? So first of all, um, Anne and I, we spent a little bit of time, and Anne, I, you'll concur to this, of trying to figure out what exactly is the case here of putting a lamp on a tree? Was there something special? And it's not saying eights here. It says decal. So it seems like it means something specific here. Uh, we personally could not find anything in the commentaries. Like, why would you be putting a burning lamp in a tree? Um, that doesn't seem to be a smart thing to do. The only thing I could think of, Anne, after you and I were finished talking about this is, like, the palm tree leaves are very wide. So maybe it could hold a lamp. Right. So that's that's know. my question. Like, is it something that's just, yeah. like, as if it were a bird feeder, but it happens to be a lamp, you know, that's on the right. branch? Right. Of the I don't know. So, yeah. I don't know. And I think that so if any of our learners have an idea about that, that would be interesting. But what is this thing about why you could leave a lamp on uh, something on Shabbos, but you could not leave it on Yom Tov? Um, and this gets into something very, very interesting about Muksa also. So basically, the rabbis made a takana. They made a decree here that you cannot, uh, you know, go up, climb a tree or make use of a tree. Um, on Shabbat or on Yom Tov, because we're worried that you may accidentally tear off a branch, um, which you can't do because that would be violating the malacha, the prohibitive action of kotzer, right, of reaping. So that would be the problem with, um, with you know, if you accidentally, so I don't know, if, you know, you may all have very perfect children out there, but one of the things that makes me crazy is I'll be walking with my kids on Shabbos. I had one kid who used to do this all the time. And they would like, while we're walking to shul, just would like randomly pull like leaves or grass, like by things that we pass. And I'm always like, you literally cannot do that on Shabbos. Like that's really like a malacha. <laughs> um, so, you know, like absentmindedly, that was something they liked to do. So the concern is, and that's why the Rabbanan made this takana that, you know, uh, you know, if you are climbing up a tree or you're using the tree for something, you may just like rip a branch down. It's in your way. Or you may absentmindedly you know, pluck something off the tree and you would be in violation of Kotzer. Here's the Chiddush here of what this statement is saying that, Rav, that's really interesting. So why would it be that it would be okay if we're concerned about this issue of Kotzer to leave the burning lamp on Shabbos? 
but not on Yom Tov. And it has to do actually with the halachot of muksa, Because what we know is, is that the this lamp is muksa on Shabbos, right? This was something that we learned in the previous page. Because if it's already been burning, right? This was the concept that we talked about yesterday. If it's already been burning on Bein Hashemashos, and therefore it is, therefore the lamp is already muksa, even if later on it burns out, right? Because presumably you wouldn't necessarily move a lit lamp, right? But even if it burns out later, that lamp remains muksa for the duration of Shabbos. On Yom Tov, we don't have that same concept and it's not muksa. And therefore we are concerned that if you were to move it after it burns out on Yom Tov, then you actually may come in violation of Kotzer, right? Which you're not allowed to do on Yom Tov either. You may actually come in violation of plucking a branch, right? Of reaping. Um, and, and therefore we, that's why Rav had to teach this difference here about the use of trees um, on Shabbat. And it, you know, it would seem a little bit counterintuitive, but in a way, the halachot of muksa, this parameter of muksa, actually allows you to place the lamp um, and to move it afterwards. Um, uh, well, at least that you can leave it there on Shabbat. Excuse me, you can't move it because it's muksa, but in a way that you cannot on Yom Tov because it's not muksa on Yom Tov. And there's a concern that you may come to Kotzer. Um, so just an interesting halacha about trees that I wanted to point out. Again, it's something you could totally miss on the page, but an interesting halacha and takana um, about trees. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out here, um, just a little bit later on, is we see um, that while we're talking about lamps, and we keep seeing this, that, uh, you know, the, the Neirot Hanukkah, the, the Hanukkah candles pop up again. Um, and a little bit further down, right, there's, uh, it says here, um, right, they asked Rav the following question, right, you should all know that word from, we just celebrated Pesach, right, that's uh, the candle that we mentioned in Chagadja, so what is the law about moving the Hanukkah menorah from where it was because of the Chabare on Shabbos? right, after the candles have gone out. And Rav replied that you were allowed to do it, meaning that it doesn't seem that the menorah is actually muksa after the flames go out, even though we just said that on Shabbat, that that would that lamp would be. Um, and so what are they talking about here? So who were the Chabare? Um, so they were a group of people who ruled in Babel who were known to be very, very violent. And therefore, it was considered basically not to be safe necessarily to have this menorah out. And even if there was a way that you could sort of safely light it, um, you know, like maybe you lit exactly your 30 minutes. As you know, on Shabbat evening, it's actually a little bit longer, but you lit for, you know, your 45 minutes an hour. And as soon as it was done lighting, you wouldn't even want to leave the, the menorah, any evidence outside that you had this lit manure and you wanted to move it inside. And so here, what's interesting in this case is Rev says, of course, you're allowed to move it. And the Gemara answers, why? Because it was a time of emergency. So yes, ordinarily, this menorah would be considered to be, right? It's just, it's a lit lamp, right? Before Shabbat begins, therefore it would be considered muksa for the duration of Shabbat. But here in this particular case, the obligation to fulfill you know, lighting these Shabbos candles, we will allow you to move the manure, even though under typical typical circumstances, it would be considered to be, um, you know, muksa. But because of the danger here, because of this group, the Chabare, um, in this case, Rav allowed that you were allowed to move it. So 
just two interesting things that I think here right at the beginning of the DAF, one of the special halacha about trees and the use of trees on Shabbat and on Yom Tov and the issue of kotzer um, and being very careful about that. And again, that we keep seeing whenever we talk about, uh, you know, lights of any sort that Shabbos candles, uh, sorry, that Hanukkah candles always seem to sort of reappear. And again, a little bit of a special halacha, a special law that we see regarding Shabbos candles here. I'm noting that this is, again, one of those areas that kind of to know anything about it, you have to know everything about it because everything is kind of referring to all different kinds of other aspects that if you don't have a handle on it, there's no way to keep track of it, which is always a challenge. Um, Okay, I want to go on later on the DAF. um, And the part I'm interested in talking about here is the opinion of Shmuel, and we'll compare it to Yehuda or Yehuda and I think also what's interesting there is um, it, it speaks to the nature of Psak. It speaks to the way the Gemara talks about different opinions when you have Dat uh, Yachid, right? Somebody who's in the minority or even a, a sole voice and the fact that they are nonetheless included in Shas and represented in full. And then we might not pass them like them at all, right? But they're there and there's all kinds of you know, recognition for both the value of the minority voice, that kind of thing, in terms of recognition of disputes, which we talk about all the time, right? Everything is a machloket, everything is a matter of dispute, but also the fact that there's a, that there are what we'll call klaleipsak, there are different um, principles in place that allow for deciding whose, whose voice is going, or who multiple voices are going to hold sway when there is such a dispute. So the, the question or the matter of the nature of Psach um, is kind of underlying what's going on here. Really, it's still talking about Moksa. Okay, Amar of Yehuda, Amar Shmuel. Ein Moksa, Rabbi Shimon. I'm sorry, that's what I want to talk about. Rabbi Shimon, Ella Grot V'tzimukim Bilvad. Rabbi Shimon, and we've seen him appear in the context of Hilchot Shabbat before. He is the same person who talks about Melech HaShein Atzrich Gufa. Um, the where the action is whether the, where the question is whether you need the physical outcome of the physical of the act that you're doing uh, the malacha that you're doing. So here's Rabbi Shimon, and he holds according to this according to this statement, he holds the only things that are muksa, the only things that are prohibited to move on Shabbat are grogrot. These are dried figs or drying figs. Vitzimukim bilva raisins. This does not mean like you know the raisins that are at your table. It means specifically the activity of drying these things. They would, you know, slap, slap them down up on the roof and let the sun do its job. The Gemara says, and nothing else? Meaning, the Gemara here says, okay, fine, you have this statement that says that Rabbi Shimon only thinks that the issue of dried figs and raisins is, is the only moksa that you could have, right? I mean, you take them up to your roof, you dry them, and now they're prohibited on Shabbat because they have been set aside as moksa, right? I mean, they've been set aside as something that is in the act of drying, I guess, right? And so then, since it's not finished, they are not yet available, right? You're not going to eat them. Um, the commentary, you know, says that in this process, during this process, they're actually kind of icky. And 
that again would put them in the category perhaps of muksum mahmat meus, right? That they're that they're unpleasant or disgusting, unfit for consumption. So you they're left aside. And so the Gemara says, like, really, is it only figs and and raisins? Nothing else? And then the Gemara says, well, didn't we also learn that there were some figs? And they took them up to the roof and they went to make dried figs and they were eating grapes and they took them up to the roof to make raisins. And so that these things were already the the um the fresh figs and the fresh raisin the fresh grapes rather were already um being handled on Shabbat right they were being eaten and then the leftovers what were what was going to be taken up to the roof to dry that is not something that has already been set in motion or in the process of drying so that's okay still and then the Gemara says well what about peaches and what about and here I love this chavush Chavush is a quince. Now, I know this from the new fruit era of the year, right? Where you, you know, you go to the store and you find all kinds of new fruits to try, right? And I made the great error one year of providing the new fruit of the chavush, of the quince. You can't eat it. If it's mamash not, it's really not edible unless it's well, been cooked. Well, I but I learned that the hard way. The new fruits that we eat are generally tend to be fruits that there's a reason why we don't eat them year round. <laughs> Right, right, exactly. We say that every year, but so quince. I, you know, I don't know how many how many novels from the eighteen hundreds did I read that talk about quince pie or something like that, and it never crossed my mind that of course this fruit must be cooked in order for it to be good. So here, the gemara yeah. knows that, right? It needs to be dried in the sun at least, right, for it to be edible or tasty or whatever. Um, and peaches, peaches, you know, you can eat in all different forms, but again, here the point is. It's not really literally just figs and raisins. It's something that is in the process here of, you know, being dried and whatever fruit you're going to use to do that. That's I I think a whole other uh, and uh, thing we could do on uh, Masachat Shabbat is like the food of Masachat Shabbat. (laughs) Someone may bring a dissertation. It's really so true. (laughs) And if not, you know, it's available. Uh, Meaning we don't know. Um, Okay, so this is Reb Shimon's opinion, or this is what's attributed to Reb Shimon as his opinion, and it's a it's an unusual opinion, in part because, as we'll see later, right? There's a discussion at some point about everything being muktzah, which again I don't want to get into that right now. But he's saying virtually nothing is muktzah, except for if it's actually designated to be in the process of you know, uh, you know, where the where the process of the drying out makes it something that, of course, you're not going to handle on Shabbat. So his opinion is not the majority opinion, right? Rabbi Yehuda is the one who says, no, no, all kinds of other things are muksa as well. Um, so this discussion ends up being like a whole, like, why are we having this whole position of Rabbi Shimon here to begin with? You jump down and further into the Gemara, it says, well, there's another case. Here we go. Um, it says, well, if you talk about Rabbi Yehuda's opinion, where what happens? He's eating figs, and he's he wants to. You want to think about the fact that he's in the course of eating. He doesn't need to say in advance this is going to be dried out or mooks or whatever on Shabbat. And then he changes his mind, right? He takes up the leftovers to the roof and then 
He puts them there to, to dry. But then he changes his mind. He says, oh, you know what? Let's have them now. They never acquired the status of mooks in that case, right? So he brought them up to the roof. He, he divert. so this is the machloket, right? He, put, he brought them up to the roof. He left them there. He says, oh, let me go back and get them. Now, is that okay or is that not okay? And the Gemara seems to say that according to Rabbi Yehuda, they now have acquired the status of mukta, even though they did not have the status of mukta from the beginning of Shabbat. Now, why is this interesting to me? Rabbi Yehuda's opinion is that something can acquire the status. Not only are many things mukta from before Shabbat to begin with, but then something can even become mukta over the course of Shabbat, which is a very strong contrast to Rabbi Shimon's view. And the bottom line is, we paskin like Rabbi Yehuda for most things of mukta, right? So the idea here is that, I don't know, wanna, let's characterize them as like a maximalist or minimalist with regard to mukta, and, and the views are so divergent, and they, and they carry through the daf, right? Meaning most of what's going on here is, figure, is sussing out, you know, how it's really not Rabbi Shimon's opinion, but really it's Rabbi Yehuda's opinion. Um, and... And I find it kind of, you know, when we say that we're expanding the topic of Muk or the topic of Muksa is so broad, and it is because of we're following Rabbi Huda's opinion. But if we had only followed Rabbi Shimon's opinion, we would have a much narrower field of things that we're not allowed to handle on Shabbat. So this issue of like how you, how the Psakha comes down has very serious, real, you know, real ramifications, not just in terms of what we do, but in terms of how we conceive of these areas, full areas of halacha. Um, I just want to also note that towards the end of the daf here, in contrast to the previous daf that we've been discussing, we have straight up a discussion of, with the terms, nolad and mukta, right? Which says, v'hamar av nachman, man de'it le mukta, eat le nolad. The late le mukta, late le nolad. De'it bebeitza efroach. So it says, didn't Rav Nachman say, right, that there's opinion that if you have muksa, if let's make sure I get the directions right, If you have muksa, you also have nolad. If you don't have muksa, you don't have nolad, right? But you can still have. And then the discussion is, what happens when you have an egg which has a chicken in, it, you know, a baby chick, which is a whole other question. Um, these terms that we keep saying, oh, they're not discussed by name. Here they are discussed by name. It's not that the Gemara didn't know these terms. It's that the Gemara is establishing the cases and the different opinions out of Shimon versus Rabbi Huda, and, and here we have Rav Nachman and so on, right? All of this is develop, developing an area of halacha without the labels. And I think that there's a value to that because it forces you to pay attention. It forces us as learners to pay attention to the, let's say, the underlying concepts, what's going on here. Otherwise, we can get stuck in the labels and we say, well, I know what Muxa is. And the answer is, well, maybe you don't know what muksa is. Did you ever think that muksa was just raisins and figs, dried raisins and figs in particular? So, okay, I'm going to... No, I, I, I really like how you said that about Rabbi Huda and Rabbi Shimon. It's a maximalist versus a minimalist opinion. And I think as we continue to discuss muksa, uh, for all of us, that's a great framing. So any case that we have, it's looking, especially the cases where a lot of what the Gemara is doing is trying to tease out, is this the opinion of Rabbi Huda? Is this the opinion of Rabbi Shimon? Is to look at the case and say, does this case feel maximalist? I'm making a word or minimal. I don't think you're making up the word. I think that's the real word. I used it too. I used it yeah. too. 
minimalist I use all the time. But anyhow, I think that's a great way to frame it. So when we see some of these, you know, Tanaitic statements that are quoted, or even something with the Amorim, where they're trying to figure something out, and it's not clear, you know, it's a statement following the opinion of Rabbi Huda, Rabbi Shimon, when we read it, that's the first question you should be asking. Is it maximalist? Is it minimalist? And then once you know that answer, then you would be able to say, okay, it's Rabbi Yehuda or it's Rabbi Shai. So I, you, you helped me really think about that in a, in a much better framework. Thanks. I also have this feeling that, you know, we're going to want to go, as we, as we continue through this discussion of Muxa, when we get to what I'm going to call the beginning, right, the origin story of Muxa, I feel like we're going to want to go back and go through all these dapim to line it back up. Who said what, when, where do we see Rabbi Yehuda, where do we see Rabbi Shimon, and so on. We're not going to be able to do that. This is definitely me. It doesn't work that way. But I know, but I literally was going to say that. I was just going to say, I almost <laughs> want to go back and now reread now that you've framed it. Back. Right? I mean, I, I think I think that, you know, one day we will sit down and we will learn together or teach together Hilchot Muktzah, you know, starting with the Gemara, and there will be much more to discuss in much greater depth. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you find your podcast. Join us on our WhatsApp group. Uh, comment, you know, chat away on our Facebook page. Uh, thank you to Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.